Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics, mostly the British ones. I'm Eamon Clark, and it is a very warm welcome to a new recruit to the book club. Jim O'Brien joins me. Welcome to the book club, Jim. Thank you so much, Eamon. It's lovely, lovely to be here. And it's a delight to have you because you've been recruited to the cause by uh, our mutual friend, Justin Marriott. God bless uh, who you. Work with, <laughs> who you work with on a number of publications that we'll be talking about at the end. Okay. And he suggested you might be a good uh, person to come on the book club. Well, that's, it's really kind of him. Um, I've listened to to the show uh, all the way through, and so to actually get a chance to to come on and sort of uh, bend other people's ears is is lovely. So uh, I'm grateful to him and to you. Uh, thank you very much. Well, it's, it's it's excellent stuff. Now we're going to be talking about a fascinating artist and one collection in particular, but some other collections that the Treasurer have been putting out of him. But before we do that, it's your first appearance, so we do comics origin stories. Can you tell us your first comics and whether there's any when 2000 AD appears in there? Yeah, um, I mean, I've been a comics reader since forever. Um, I I think uh, I was born in 1967, so I reckon I was sort of just right to emerge into the sort of the last flush of really great British comics in the 70s and early 80s. Um and I think maybe thanks to generous and kind parents, I always seemed to have access to comics when I was a kid. Uh, I was probably a, a sort of publisher's wet dream because anything with free gift splashed on the front cover, in I went. Um, bit of a butterfly after that. I tended to sort of like read all sorts of different titles, maybe not stick with them forever and ever. But I've got very clear memories as a child of reading action Uh, of reading Battle and Warlord, uh, of reading Star-Lord. I'm going to come back to 2000 AD in a minute. Um, Looking, TV comic, TV action, loads of them. Like I say, um, kind parents who helped me out with a lot of this. Uh, And I think, funny enough, with 2000 AD, I definitely remember Flesh, so I must have seen early episodes, early progs. But I don't really remember being a major fan of it until the early 80s. So about sort of 81, possibly 82, I think. Um, and I don't know why then I sort of switched back on to, to 2000 AD big time. Um, and I particularly, I just remember being very grabbed by not not the mega epics for Dread, but the, the kind of citizen stories. Those were the ones that sort of caught my eye. What would I have been then? Sort of 14, something like that. Um but yeah, comics is is just always been massive for me as a as a reader and as a fan. Then I went off to university. Uh, I studied history, and I kind of came at comics again from a different angle of sort of being a bit of a historian and looking not only at their own history but like what comics reveal about the society they come from. So you know, if you're reading comics from the seventies from Britain. What does that kind of tell you about the world we lived in then? That sort of thing. So yeah, a big a big deal for me always. Fascinating stuff. And is that was that sort of uh, studying history what's led you to go back to some of these uh, classics from earlier on, as it were? I think so. I think I think you're right. It's sort of you know, something like the the book we're going to be talking about in a minute is is there's a there's a pleasure in the art and in and in the writing too actually, but particularly the art is just lovely stuff. 
but they are also fascinating as a little glimpse into uh, a, a world that's no longer there really in publishing anyway the sort of this uh, um, celebration of World War Two and Britain's part in it and I've, I find that yeah I find that riveting so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of pleasure to be had in reading uh, these kind of stories both from the the art and and sort of what they reveal about you know yeah life in 50s and 60s Britain. Well, we may come back to that because I may ask you what these particular stories tell us about the early 1960s. Um, tell us then, let's get into it. What is the book you've chosen? Because we talked about a few, but what's the book you've chosen to come on the book club with? Yeah, so the book the book that I picked is um, one of Rebellion's War Picture Library collections uh, with art by Hugo Pratt. Uh, it's called Night of the Devil, uh, and it contains two stories. Night of the Devil and uh, Bayonet Jungle. And the first one's written by Tom Tully and the other's written by a man called Gordon Soman. So you've re- and they've majored on the fact that these are stories by Hugo Pratt. So I think it's uh, th- that works for me too. It's the art in these stories that is preeminent, I think. That's, that's the real draw of these, you know, a great, great European stroke Argentinian artist, but working in British comics briefly. And they're, to me, they're fascinating for that as well. Yes, yeah, so we're going to be talking about the black and white artwork of Hugo Pratt and talking a little bit about his career and possibly his most notable work. But here we have, as you say, this 2021 collection from Rebellion, the Treasury of British Comics, uh, collects these two stories. I've got originally published in Battle Picture Library 62 yeah. and War Picture Library 91 from 1961 and 1962 respectively. Yeah. With an introduction in this collection by the comics writer Chloe Mayville, who um, I must see if I can get her to come on the book club, actually. It's, a, it's a very good introduction. Book. Yeah, it's, I thought it was it a is. great introduction. And uh, yeah, lots of... She's done a lot of research, clearly, and I thought it was very articulate. So, yeah, fascinating. So we've sort of, as I said, we picked over a couple of titles you suggested. Why did this one make your list? What was it particularly about, Night of the Devil, this collection? I think I think two words. Hugo Pratt, uh, really fascinating artist. Um, someone who, um, you know, I, I think, as, as you've alluded to already, was is better known for later work particularly the the Corto Maltese stories, um, of which a few have been published in English. But the the War Picture Library work that he did in the sort of uh, very early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, is really the the, the, the best chance you have as a, as a British reader of seeing his work. He's, he's a fascinating artist and with a huge career. Uh, so I think probably that is the first and best reason for me for choosing this book to try and talk about. Um, also, as I said, I, I, I find the sort of the war comics of this period riveting, uh, why they were so popular in Britain, how come there were so many of them, and what kind of image they present of Britain's part in the war. So there's a there's a sort of dual interest Um Thirdly, I suppose, is is the whole sort of mechanics of how these comics came to be put together, uh, how the artists and writers were found to to, to produce the comics, and especially that this way that um, uh, British publishers like Fleetway or DC Thompson up in Dundee were calling on European talent, 
South American talent to 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 produce the art for for the titles. And the whole the whole way that's done is 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 sort of really intriguing. This sort of agency system which had people from Buenos Aires to Barcelona to uh, Rome, sort of working on British weekly comics and and pocketbooks like these. Um, so yeah, three three reasons for me that these that th- th- this particular collection I think is fascinating. All right, very good. Well, let's let's turn to the stories first of all before we get to Hugo Pratt. We've got two stories in this collection. We're in a particular theatre of World War II. Tell us a little bit about where we are and then sort of briefly go over the outline of the two stories for us, Jim. Yeah, so you're right. We, we, we're, in, we're in Burma for both of these stories. So we're talking about the, the Far Eastern War. Um, I don't think, and I can check that very quickly, but I don't think either of them are dated very precisely in terms of the story. But I think certainly Night of the Devil, it reads to me as if we're sort of fairly early on in the campaign in Burma with British forces preparing for the Japanese invasion of that country as as they were pushing towards India. And so both stories, it, they, they, they make a nice pair because of the way they deal with a, uh, a common theatre of war, a common enemy uh, and the response of the British to that threat. It, there's, again, I mean, Pratt, I think probably if you were an artist working on the war libraries, you you took what you were given by the editors. So I'm sure he um, had very little sort of choice over which stories he was picking up to illustrate. But he does seem to have sort of spread his talents around. Uh, there, is, there are stories set in North Africa, which is very interesting for a reason that we might come back to in terms of Pratt's own story. There are there are there are war uh, at sea stories that he drew but certainly these two both set in the the fight against the japanese in burma and just tell us a little bit about night of the devil to begin with by tom tully it's a, it's a cracking story. I know I've majored on sort of talking about how wonderful these books are for, for Hugo Pratt's art and various other things. But I must say, actually, this story by Tom Tully, I think, is is tremendous. You've got a, a, a small group of British soldiers, uh, a slightly uncertain officer, a lieutenant, a very, very solid sergeant, which is a, a common and key feature to a lot of these books i find the sergeant as a sort of like a hero figure um who are besieged inside uh, a, a, a siamese temple um having inadvertently given away their position to japanese forces there they have to sort of hole up inside a, Jap- a, a siamese temple uh, and a, a sort of war of attrition takes place with um, b- the British soldiers being picked off one by one, only for the story to finish on a kind of sort of um, on, on a sort of time slip note, as we realise that the slightly fevered imagination of the British lieutenant has actually sort of almost dreamt this whole ghastly story of their siege, and it then sort of kicks back to him waking up and they're about to enter the temple once again. So it's, it's, a, it's a very cleverly plotted story and nicely nicely shaped, I think. It's got one of the other features, which I think is great about all of these uh, War Picture Library episodes, or many of them. You've got this sort of relatively small cast of characters, but you've got a Scotsman. It sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, but you've got a sort of Scotsman, an Irishman, a Welshman, etc. 
and the banter between them and the sort of uh, the 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 way that they interact is is very well handled in Night of the Devil. Like I say, I think Tom Tully, who you know you and I both know, is a huge sort of comics author. Uh, he would have been relatively young, I think, at this stage. You know, 60, 61, 62, a relatively young man. But from what I was reading, he was already sort of marked down by Fleetway as a bit of a star writer and he seems to have been paid rather more for his scripts than some of his his uh, contemporaries so he I, I can see that i mean i think reading the story you do feel you're in the hands of a of a master storyteller the the, the second story in the collection which is uh, the the bayonet jungle written by a, a guy called gordon soman again as we've said set in in burma during uh, the the Far Eastern campaign. Um, again, you've got the sort of small group of soldiers, the interaction between the, the Scotsman, the Irishman and the Welshman. Again, you've got a very powerful sergeant figure who sort of directs the action and sort of keeps everything on board. Um, it's a slightly more a slightly more sort of open kind of story with a, 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 a new private, Jack Green, has joined the platoon and he appears possibly to be a Jonah, a bit of a jinx, because wherever he goes, problems occur. They're ambushed, they're shot at, uh, their supplies don't make it through. And some of the other troops in the platoon sort of wonder if he is the jinx who's causing all this bad fortune to come their way. Uh, and ultimately, he's, he's, he's sort of he's a uh, absolved of, of that charge but it's although it's a less punchy story i think than than night of the devil it's still pretty good um gordon soman I, I knew much much less about him when i picked up this book but having sort of read a little bit about him he was obviously one of these other jobbing writers for for fleetway he sort of had a hand in quite a few of the thriller picture library titles in the late 50s early 60s uh, wrote novels as well, um, all sorts of adventure and spy novels, some are slightly sleazy. Um, so I would imagine someone who could turn his hand to whatever writing job was in hand. They're both fascinating stories. I was particularly taken by the Tom Tully story, that, which gives the, the collection its title, um, and I mentioned this in our notes that, you know, I thought this had this strange, you have mentioned a sort of time slip uh, or time loop, but this sort of strange ghost story-like feel about yeah. the mysterious temple and this um, this small group of soldiers and what they get involved in. Um, I thought that stuff was particularly good. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think I think it's really well done and 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 very, very effective. It's got a genuinely sort of chilling, disturbing air to it. Great stuff. Now, the format for these comics originally takes us to the Picture Library series um, because, as I understand it, there's an interest in the way these comics were laid out and available um, was interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about the format and also about the history of the titles? Yeah. I mean, I, I think sort of post-Second World War, once paper rationing ended in the sort of mid-50s, early to mid-50s, um, many of the sort of British publishers of, of all sorts of um, journals and magazines and comics, was, there was a sudden uptick in business. You know, you had more paper. Uh, the economy was beginning to boom again in, in the, the post-war period. 
And these sort of like pocket books, digest size comics, uh, sort of merged in the early 50s, first at, at uh, what had been amalgamated uh, and was then subsequently Fleetway. They were the ones who sort of like uh, steered the course. And as I think you were suggesting in some of your notes, you know, there's, there's a lot of them. They, they, they produced a great many of these sort of digest size comics. They're all roughly 64 pages long. They're about uh, sort of 18 by 13 centimetres in size. So I think you could probably imagine fitting four of them on the front cover of a British comic of the period. Um, right. So, you know, a good bit smaller than a, than a weekly comic on the newsstand. Uh, always black and white art. Usually one story, sometimes one slightly longer story with a very short backup tale at the end. Um, always uh, sort of given chapter breakdown. So you, you normally the, the longer tale would run over four or even five chapters, as it, as it does in Night of the Devil. Um, and under some very glorious, fully painted colour covers, all the all the Fleetway titles and Commando, which was DC Thompson's big sort of Scottish competitor to the London um, titles, always had magnificent painted colour covers, uh, which I think must have really made them stand out on on the the newsagent shelves back in the sixties. And just to mention, you know, how they laid out the pages, because because of the size of it, there is there's characteristically there's less panels on a page for these picture library yeah. books. Yeah, you're right. And and it's it's one of the ways that they do look particularly old fashioned, I think, to our eyes now. You've got, as you say, generally two rectangular panels per page. There's very little messing around with that um, right the way through the runs of these comics. So, you know, up into the sort of late 70s, early 80s even, they don't tend to mess around with that formula. You've got these two, sometimes three, rectangular panels on the page. They the, There's very little sort of um, uh, sort of innovation around that. The other way that they look old-fashioned and that they can read in a slightly different way to a lot of modern comics is that they're very reliant on text boxes in the corner of each panel so you get a huge amount of exposition and story told to you through the text boxes uh, which is then sort of backed up by the one or two speech balloons that you get in each panel Um, possibly I, I think maybe they they do reveal their origins in earlier sort of picture story magazines where you would have images and a set of text below the image without any speech balloons. I think there's probably a kind of link up to those pre-war titles in the way that they're laid out. And if we just mention War Picture Library and Battle Picture Library, which these two stories appear in, um, they both start, uh, I think War Picture Library starts in 1958, Battle Picture Library is 1961. Yeah. They run until the 1980s, as you've said, and they have hundreds, if not thousands, of issues, don't they? Yeah, absolutely incredible, incredibly long life. Um, both had, certainly before they came to their end, both had gone over to entirely reprinted stories, so that, uh, which is great for collectors, because if you, you know, if you fancy picking up some of the issues, the early ones with 
for instance, Hugo Pratt art in, uh, although the those early issues are harder to track down in Good Nick, um, because many of them were reprinted once, twice, even three times later on in their runs up into the sort of late 70s, you can, with a bit of diligence, you can track them down. Um, they tended... Fleetway tended to sort of retain the original title. They sometimes changed the cover art. For instance, I've got a I've got a um a copy of War Picture Library 791, which is Night of the Devil reprinted. And I think that's from 1972, but it's got different cover art to the to the original. Um slightly less good, unfortunately, but uh but yeah, they they they, it, they were prodigious. I mean, and they, they were putting out sort of in in their heyday, they were putting out four new war picture libraries or four new battle picture libraries every single month. Astonishing stuff. And you, you've you've mentioned painted covers at the back of this collection. We have the two original covers by Pino della Orco. Yeah, and they are just stunning piece of fully painted coloured uh, covers. Yeah. Um, and you, you also, I think you flashed me a couple of your own collection beforehand. They've all got beautiful covers, haven't they? They have. They're really, really stunning. And I think, lucky us, uh, Pino Delorco was definitely one of the absolute stars uh, of the of those covers in the sixties and early seventies. They're really, really outstanding. Um, I was I was fascinated to to discover that he uh, obviously you can probably tell from his name was an Italian. Um, but lived in the UK for a while, really because of the the you know the amount of work he was getting from Fleetway um, and possibly DC Thompson as well, I think, but certainly Fleetway. Um, and uh, he lived in Kent for for quite a few years. Um, but yeah, I, I would put his his cover art as you know some of the best you'll find in, on on these comics. They're, they're really outstanding, and he had a lot of competition too. Um, Fascinating stuff. Now, I'll just mention very quickly before we move to Hugo Pratt that the Picture Library series itself had... There was loads of titles, and it wasn't all war comics, basically. They would do a Picture Library for uh, love stories, schoolgirls, Picture yeah. Library, Super Detective, Tiger Sports. Um, yeah, there was a whole yeah. bunch of them, basically. There was there was a massive, massive bunch of them, and those are just the 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 Fleetway titles. And you've got DC Thompson, who very similarly did you know a host of titles devoted to all the different genres, and then below them, they're they're the two, they're the big boys really. But below them, you've then got a host of smaller publishers, Micron, Top Sellers, Saber, who also chipped in. Uh, generally with romance and spy and war and western uh it's it's quite phenomenal the sheer volume of stuff that was being produced they certainly the ones we're looking at in in night of the devil i think they were a, a shilling a piece when they were published in the early 60s which i if if my sort of pre-decimal maths is 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 sort of vaguely right meant them they were about double the price of a traditional boys' comic on the newsstand at the time. So they're a little bit more expensive. They're longer, as it were, in terms of the the, 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 the story that you're getting across 64 pages. I've got a hunch that maybe many of these Digest books were pitched at a slightly older reading audience than uh, the, 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 the sort of Fleetway IPC 
comics um anthology comics i think that maybe they were they were looking to kind of extend their readership into the sort of early teens by producing these kinds of comics that are halfway to being a sort of uh, a, a short novel it, it, um uh, i i don't know that for sure but it's much, it's just a hunch i have that it's sort of maybe that's where they were looking for their their chief audience someone who had a bit little bit more money possibly and wanted to be seen to be moving away just from children's comics would be my guess it's fascinating in a way we we probably don't have time to get into this but the the market then as you've said producing so many comics every week and presumably there was an audience for them they were being bought yeah um there weren't so many other distractions in media i guess that's it i think you know it's that that period from the sort of 50s through to the early 80s i think comics were absolutely central to the culture of a a british childhood um even if you didn't buy it, and I know this from experience, you know, I was listening at the the beginning of the show, sort of all the comics I read as a child. That doesn't mean I bought all of them, but the whole sort of swapping culture meant that they were reaching, you know, potentially millions of children uh, across a, a period of time. But certainly they were selling in their tens, twenties, even hundreds of thousands. It's it's sort of remarkable, really, now when that is not it's not a feature of British sort of publishing life anymore on that scale. Astonishing. Well, we'll just mention quickly that so far Rebellion and the Treasury of British Comics have issued four collections of the sort of uh, picture library stuff. They've done Battle Stations by Hugo Pratt. They did the Battle of Britain collection by Ian Kennedy, then Battle of Britain again by Pratt. And this, I think, is the fourth one, Night of the Devil. And we were talking just before we came on to record that they have literally just today announced that the fifth one is going to be another Hugo Pratt um, collection, which I believe is going to be called The Iron Fist. And that will be, uh, I think that's available for pre-order now. Great. No, well, that's really, really exciting. I think that's that's terrific news. Um, and it's worth saying to anyone who's, who's sort of interested in checking out these these um, kinds of stories that not only have Rebellion done us proud and produced all these, these lovely collections, but um, Book Palace Books uh, have also done sort of various bind-ups of Fleetway stories. I think there's ooh, at least three or four of them as well. Just just on the war libraries, so yeah, we're 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 very lucky. There's a there's a lot of good stuff going on at the moment, and um, a lot of these wonderful stories being republished after, you know, decades of of having to sort of search around flea markets and so on for them. Okay, well, let's turn to the stunning black and white art in this collection, which gives us a chance to talk about an artist that I've always heard about a lot but I think this is the first time I've actually been able to sit down and read one of his collections and as you know I've gone on to read another couple of things from him since um, this. Tell us Jim who was Hugo Pratt? Well yeah a fascinating a fascinating guy um, born in 1927 in Rimini in Italy but I think almost immediately went to live in Venice with his family as you might guess from the name, despite being Italian, he had English heritage somewhere back in, in his father's side of the family. Um, indeed, at some point in his family tree, he is related to uh, Boris Karloff, who's 
um, birth name was William Henry Pratt. There is a connection there somewhere. <laughs> um, in fact, when Hugo Pratt was born, he he was born as he was born as Hugo without the H, Pratt with just one T. And it's a little bit later in his life that he kind of anglicizes his name to Hugo Pratt. Um, I I thought at first that was that was a deliberate sort of like claiming kin with his English forebears. I think possibly it's actually more to do with the young Hugo Pratt's desire to get to America. And I think he saw that as being a more American name than his birth name. And it sort of became his his nom de plume, his, his sort of writing name. That's a bit in the future. Um, as a very young boy, uh, Hugo Pratt's father was a, a sort of civil servant in the uh, in Ethiopia when it had been invaded and conquered by Mussolini's Italy. So Pratt's childhood was sort of half in Venice and then half in 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 Ethiopia, what the what the Italians called Abyssinia. Um, when war was declared in 1940, um, Pratt's father joins the the Italian military. Uh, he, indeed, a sort of pint-sized Hugo Pratt sort of joins the sort of um, the sort of like uh, boys' brigade version of the of the military. And tragedy ensues because um, Hugo Pratt's father is is captured, and subsequently dies in a prisoner of war camp from disease. Uh, Pratt and his mother are uh, in a civilian resettlement camp for a time before finally going back to Italy once the Italians had surrendered and uh, withdrawn from the war. Um, so a very, a very sort of disturbed and upset childhood. But I think, you know, you can say that the, the silver lining was that, first of all, Pratt obviously was exposed to comics as quite a young boy, American comics, particularly sort of Milton Caniff's work, which he adored. And he also experienced life outside of uh, Western Europe. Uh, And that became an absolutely like a keynote of his work later on, this sort of fascination with foreign cultures, uh, with with the way that war sort of affected foreign nations, uh, you know, in the 20th century. So in a, in a curious way, his his probably rather miserable childhood was sort of there was there was some compensation for his career later on. As a young man after the war, he got into comics professionally. I think self I think rather self depreciatingly, sort of mockingly, described himself as part of the Venice group. There was a, a sort of a group of young men in Venice who were all involved in comics uh, and. Pratt and a couple of the others went off to Buenos Aires in the the late 40s. I could never quite understand this. You know, I thought, well, you know, as an Italian, what link would you have to to Argentina? You know, how on, earth, how on earth did he come to end up in Buenos Aires? But I read that Argentina had a very, very long history of settlement from Italy and that huge, huge numbers of Argentinians have Italian names and claim Italian heritage. And that there were publishers, there were Italian publishers in Buenos Aires after the war who were actively looking to recruit young Italian artists and writers and bring them over to Buenos Aires. And I think probably in, you know, post-war Italy with the place in ruins, it probably seemed an attractive option to to get out um, 
get down to, to Buenos Aires and sort of, and I think for Pratt, he thought he was on the way to America. I think he saw Buenos Aires as a stepping stone to the United States. That never happened. Uh, and in some ways, I think we can probably say thank goodness for that because the way his comics grew uh, as a sort of, as a European in South America meant that they sort of developed a, a wonderful character of their own through the sort of 50s. We could talk a little bit about some of the stuff he did then, but possibly of interest for us in relation to these war picture books is that um, in 59, Pratt decided to up sticks and move to Britain. And I'm sure that was because he knew he already had work from Fleetway by that point. He'd been sending work from Buenos Aires. But I suspect a mixture of the promise of more work in Britain uh, his marriage seemed to be going through a rough patch and Argentina was going through one of its very many sort of downturns economics wise all meant get out of Dodge get back to Europe and he was living in South Kensington in London for the best part of a year in late 59 early 60 producing these these um these war picture books for Fleetway and and doing little bits and bobs for I think Tiger he drew for and one of the other weeklies of the period, I think what he was doing was bringing the work that he'd done in Argentina and then sort of selling it to British publishers. It's absolutely fascinating that he moved about so much. As you said, he had a Venice period, a Buenos Aires period. Then he's in London. Um, later on, he'll be back in Italy. He has a France, uh, French period yeah. as well. While he was in Argentina, we'll perhaps just mention that he worked with, or he at least certainly was Grew, uh, friends with the sort of Buenos Aires uh, comics creators like uh, Breccia, uh, Solana Lopez, and a writer called Easterhell yeah. that you and I sort of we briefly talked about whether we would consider some of their works yeah. as well. Yeah. Obviously, when he returns to Italy after his London period, he's going to go on and create his most famous work, Corto Maltese. Is that how you would say it? I think it is. Yes, Corto Maltese. So tell us about that comic, um, because it becomes his major work, doesn't it? It does. It, it very much does. I think, as you say, he, it, having returned to Argentina following his time in Britain, he's there for another six years or so, I think, before a move to Italy, back, back home to Italy, so to speak. Um, and with a bit of money behind him from a, a philanthropic uh, supporter and publisher, he... He founds a magazine called Sergeant Kirk. Sergeant Kirk was a strip that uh, Pratt and Esterheld had worked on in Argentina in the 50s. And Pratt was sort of looking to republish some of his Argentinian work for an Italian audience in the late 60s. Interestingly, I think he got into a bit of trouble because he dropped, I think he and Esterheld had sort of on and off relationship and they were in an off period in the 60s and he dropped Esterheld's name from the Sergeant Kirk strips that he published uh, about which Esterheld was not happy. But Sergeant Kirk as a magazine in Italy was very successful. One of the stories in the very first issue is the first episode of what became this long-running saga about Corto Maltese, Maltese Shorty, a sailor, an adventurer in very early 20th century Europe whose adventures take in some of the key 
historical events of that time, running up into the First World War, uh, allowing him to meet all sorts of real historical personages, but to have a great series of adventures mixed with sort of almost sort of philosophical contemplations on the nature of fate and uh, humanity's uh, treatment of one another. They're, they're great stories. I, I know you've you've read a few and we are unfortunately as always uh, as as british readers we're we're slightly poorly served because if you're french spanish uh italian you've got loads of editions to choose from the the brits have had to make do with very very few uh translations there are some but but not enough <laughs> yet the whole subject of European comics is, you know, endlessly fascinating as well. And as you say, particularly Italian and French comics. He has his French period in the 70s, uh, Pratt. And I, I think Corto, I think it'd be fair to say that Corto Maltese is extremely popular in France. Yeah. I'm guessing fairly easy to get hold of the uh, the Bande Dessine albums there, I would imagine. I, w- I would imagine. I think, I think you probably would have not too much trouble tracking them down. I've been reading under the Cap- uh, under the sign of Capricorn on the Kindle, which was the only English language version I could find digitally. Yeah, to prepare for this recording, uh, it's fantastic stuff. Twelve volumes, I believe, are out there somewhere. I think you're right. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. I think when he was living in France, he was working for a a, a magazine called. Piff Gadgets, a rather strange name, but he was producing short Cortomatese stories for, for Piff Gadget over several years. And they then were sort of, as is the way with a lot of French comics, were then sort of turned into albums, collected up into albums. Um, I know you and I, we, we were sort of noodling around whether, you know, is there any sign of Cortomatese in these very much earlier British uh war digest comics and and on the surface of it you'd probably have to say no not really you know that that the the subject matter is is very specifically sort of british and second world war in 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 night of the devil and its um its contemporary stories but it it did make me think that actually one of the things that's fascinating about hugo pratt it, it, there he is as a little boy in uh ethiopia the british have uh, in, captured his father imprisoned him and he subsequently died what's his relationship to you know to to the british military um i would imagine as a as if you just lost your dad in those situations it's very conflicted because i never get the feeling that hugo pratt was a fascist in any way so he may well have seen the brits as sort of saviors you know came in and and sort of pushed back the axis powers in in africa pushed back the germans in his homeland of italy and yet he always has this sort of thing, and it, it features in the Quarto Maltese books a lot, the sort of the, the colonial powers, the British mainly, you know, stomping all over local cultures and, and sort of um, um, smaller countries. It, it becomes a theme, especially in the Quarto Maltese books. So I think it does, it does loop back to what he's doing with the war stories and sort of this look at, you know, in the early 20th century, Britain was still sort of, you know, military top dog. So I think Pratt was always very, very aware of what it meant for the British and their army to turn up in some smaller corner of the world and to examine that. 
Just before we leave, we leave Corto Maltese, Jim, I'll notice that at the back of my um, Kindle collection, there's a quote from Frank Miller, who says, who describes Pratt as one of the true masters of comic art, uh, that rarest, most valuable sort of talent in any field, an authority on time and places beyond your own. And of course, we know, we've been talking about this, Frank Miller, huge um, uh, fan of Hugo Pratt. I, I, it's great. Uh, this this was something that I, I'm very grateful to you, Eamon, for, because I hadn't realised however many times I must have read The Dark Knight Returns, I had never quite clicked that there is this reference to Corto Maltese in, in, in the story um, as, as an island in the Caribbean uh, over which uh, sort of US and Soviet forces are, are scrapping. But it's it's genius because it's that that's so that is so Corto Maltese that the kind of imperialist forces uh, stomping all over a piece of Latin America or Africa. Uh, it it was it's it's a, a lovely it's a lovely sort of glimpse into uh, another great writer and artist's appreciation of Pratt's work. I think I think that's marvelous. Yeah, astonishing. And apparently, um, I read that Frank Miller discovered. Corto Maltese in Forbidden Planet in New York in the early 1980s and then became a huge fan and sort of like tried to consume all of Pratt's work that he could and you know if we talk perhaps about later on with Sin City we can see some of the stylistic tricks that he has been influenced by maybe um, by Pratt No I think you're right and funny enough you know we we were talking earlier about how the the, the, the picture libraries with their very, very sort of rigid two rectangular panels per page, uh, you know, not, not a great deal of in, innovation in terms of page layout. For many artists who worked on those picture libraries, but who subsequently went on to do other things in comics, you can see that it was kind of like a like shackles being thrown off and that they were able to do much more experimental things with page layout. Funnily enough, Hugo Pratt actually is one of those artists who never abandoned uh, a very sort of clear simple grid system on his page he might not have used just two panels per page but all the the Corto Maltese books all the other um, many many comics he did tended to sort of stick to a pretty straightforward page layout very few splash pages uh, very few sort of tricksy things going on with panels and so on just straight down the line grid on a page so ironically you can see again that the the the, the way he was working on those British comics was not, I don't think, a restriction on him. You know, he seemed to he seemed to function very sort of happily within that style of storytelling. So there he is in London in the late 1950s and early 1960s. He, as you suggested, might have a slightly um, strange relationship with how he perceives the British Army during World War Two. But anyway, he's. You know, this uh, these picture library books um, demand content and demand it fairly quickly. I'm assuming because they're coming out, mm. as you say, weekly. Um, so we've got yeah. his black and white art. We've got him with the limitations, as you say, of like two or maybe three panels at most per page. What do you make of his black and white artwork in these two stories? Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I'd have to be honest. I think probably young Jim, if you if we went back to the 70s when I was picking these up in jumble sales, I think I would have probably put Pratt down as a a less satisfying artist to me than than some of his contemporaries. You know, if I'd found an Ian Kennedy, if I'd found a Victor de la Fuente, I'd have probably picked them up in preference to to Pratt. 
now they they strike me as being some of the best um i think that they're they're very expressive his faces are very very uh, the, the, there's great a great deal of expression in his faces i don't know if you can necessarily always tell one character from another that could be a limitation but the the sense of the emotions that they're experiencing you know in night of the devil there's the sort of the fear that they experience inside the, the temple is beautifully captured on the faces. He uses silhouette magnificently so that you can have characters in silhouette walking through jungle or caught against the skyline. And what looks like really, really sort of economical use of ink just to sort of the barest, the barest lines give a very, very full picture of who these characters are and what they're doing. Um, so I love I love all of that. I love the I love the, the 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 faces. I love the sort of use of silhouette. There's also some great panels in both Night of the Devil and the Bayonet Jungle, I think, where you've got explosions and you've got figures that are obviously sort of have been exploded and they're caught almost like uh, as if it's a negative that you're looking at. So you've got just a sort of like the black, as it were, of the the bones against a white background. He sort of deconstructed bodies down to their constituent parts as an explosion rips through them, which is a really effective way of showing. I mean, these these comics tended to definitely, you know, cut when um, you know a bayonet was going through somebody's body or a bullet was about to explode into somebody's head. They, you know, you 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 didn't get to see that, but this way of like rendering bodies sort of almost in silhouette as a sort of skeletonized figure in an explosion is a, is a brilliant device for sort of capturing the kinetic violence of those moments without really sort of becoming particularly gory. Um, and there's, there's some great examples of that in both of these stories, I think. The explosion panels are absolutely extraordinary. And I certainly, I noticed those straight away as I was going through um, as you say, using just blocks of black and white, using negative space, yeah. uh, almost inverting the yeah. image. Um, I can really see yeah. Sin City um, in those panels. I can see that Frank Miller yeah. must have looked at those panels and thought, wow, I'm going to do something like you're that. You're right, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. He, that, that's got to appeal to him very strongly with, with his sort of sensibilities. I think that's, yeah, that must have that must have seemed wonderfully sort of exciting. Yeah. And just to step back from that a little bit, I'll also notice, of course, that he's only got black and white to work with, but he does manage to give us the heat and the sun of the, the jungle. He manages to give us these yeah. wonderful expressive faces, all of which are covered in sweat. You get the impression that the uniforms are, you know, starting to fall apart as they notoriously did in the jungle. And then he gets these sort yeah. of sun-bleached jungle scenes just with white and negative space again. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, you know, as you say, looking at it now, knowing what he's going to become, you can see the great artist at work, even though he's just having to do what probably was a gig at the time, but, it, you know, he does it as ever yep. so well, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And, and I know uh, rather like Tom Tully was obviously considered to be a bit of a star turn in terms of writing, Pratt obviously was also kind of... he. he, he 
he was seen to be a star turn by the editorial team at Fleetway. Um, he he was a favourite. Uh, I suspect they would have loved to have kept him on for longer on the on the the the, the war library titles. Um, you know, I, I get the feeling he'd probably felt he'd had enough and done his done his turn and was out. But you definitely get the sense that the editorial team would have would have liked to keep him on. He was he was a surefire bet. Um, and yes, it, it's 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 masterful stuff and. Uh, and and a joy to a joy to flick through. And if, if if comics are for some people, they're a visual medium mainly. And, and I think you can you can flick through these books and and enjoy just looking at them, even if you don't read the story. Uh, they're that good. Oily smoke as well as another as another sort of like Pratt uh, key feature in quite a lot of the stories. He he does a fantastic sort of like he can sketch in oily smoke rising from some sort of exploded fuel dump or something just over the horizon i don't know how he does it but his way of drawing that that the sort of the lines of smoke rising into the sky lovely absolutely love it fantastic stuff now we've had three collections of hugo pratt from the treasury so far we've got a fourth one on the way do you have a particular favorite collection or story from those so far jim well, um, I think I think the 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 ones in Night of the Devil are my favourite, uh, and that possibly is because of the way uh, because of the art. I think the art on on Night of the Devil is some of Hugo Pratt's best of all the war stories. However, you told me today that the exciting news about this this um, next volume that's coming out, which is going to be called The Iron Fist. That's actually a story that I'm really looking forward to seeing because it's set in North Africa. So it's the theatre of war that Hugo Pratt, as a, as a young boy, experienced firsthand with his dad fighting in the Italian army and subsequently being captured. So I'm really, really looking forward to seeing that and to sort of reacquainting myself with with just how Pratt deals with a, a place and a time that he had a direct experience of. Um I think you know a number of the writers and artists on those war picture libraries had been they they'd either served in in the forces during the war or had obviously been sort of children at the time so it's not unusual for, for people involved in the production of these to have experienced the war but I do think it'll be that, that I'm especially excited to think that we're going to have a chance to look at the iron fist in a, in in bigger better detail Fascinating. One to get on and order now available on the Treasury uh, store to, for pre-order. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned earlier on that, you know, we always think a little bit about the significance of war comics and the time that they're produced in and what that tells us about popular culture at the time. We've sort of hinted, of course, that there was a massive voracious appetite for any stories in graphic format at this time they were producing so many there must have been but Mm. in here we are for sort of 15 16 years after the end of world war ii what do the these picture library collections if anything say about that time and place in popular culture yeah and and the fact that in fact it was as you say sort of 15 16 plus years after the war that that the the war titles became more rather than less popular um you know and and there's this sort of curious time lag if you like so that i don't know what would we what would we say probably sort of early to mid 70s or almost like peak second world war 
fever in terms of British comics. And it is really interesting. Um, you know, what does that say about Britain and how we viewed ourselves at that time? Um I know you've you've had a number of guests on the show over the over the years who've sort of talked about some of the stories in action and the way that action sort of proposed a slightly different take on the war with uh German characters who were more central to the narrative you know they were protagonists rather than just sort of faceless enemy uh they were good characters rather than sort of evil rotters a great deal is obviously is that there's you know there's that sense of pride in in Britain's achievements during the war. I wonder though if, as sort of the way British politics and history were going in the sixties and seventies, that there was a greater sort of desire to cling on to the war as a, as a great moment in in the national story, almost as a uh, a counterpoint to some of the things that were happening in, in British society and economics at the time. Um, you know, I, I wonder if, uh, if you can draw a line between the sort of the actual increase in the popularity of war stories in the 70s, uh, just at a time when, you know, in some ways the economy was going down the tubes and um, life was actually getting a lot less certain and, and, and sure than it had been. Yeah, that, that that that's that's a thesis for another time, but I, uh, it's something I'm very interested in, and I've I've spent my life in education, and I'm I'm always really intrigued by how the war has been sort of told to children, uh, and even if these comics are maybe for slightly older children than than some of the weeklies, um, still it's it's fascinating to see the way that British children were being presented with the war so what was in what was what was ignored how how different nationalities were presented um i know you you've again with some of your guests you've touched on the way that in war comics you get what to us nowadays seems sort of quite troubling presentations of of um you know foreign nationalities the japanese in in the case of the stories in night of the devil um I always think you have to remember that these books are, they're actually, although they're being republished by Rebellion now, they're kind of historical artefacts. The way that the Japanese are presented or the way the Germans are, are talked about in these books is is the product of an earlier time, which I think, you know, we, we needn't be too concerned about sort of what we're doing, reprinting them, because I don't think people view them as somehow sort of our current way of seeing other people. Yes. And, you know, as you say, at the time, we still knew very little about Japanese society, culture and people. Um, as you say, there is a fair, well, there's a certain amount of unfortunate representation in these pages. Interestingly, in the first story, particularly, um, there's not too much because the Japanese are almost like an invisible enemy in a way, while this story about the temple yeah. and the platoon is going on. Um yeah, which is quite which is which is done. quite masterly. Yes, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it, it actually works brilliantly because, of course, it it makes it much more sort of unnerving that we you you hardly see these these enemies that are out there somewhere in the jungle. Are they close? How many are there? It, it's that's a it's a very clever bit of storytelling. I think. Um, I think you're right. It's in the second story where there is slightly more. Of the kind of caricatures that I think in in comics of that period were were very you know very familiar. Um, we do find them 
you know a little a little strange now but i think at the time they were very much a part of uh the way that british culture in general sort of approached the japanese and and their culture so here he is hugo pratt in night of the devil um remarkable stuff black and white art it's coming out probably they're putting out one of these a week which is astonishing um yeah um Obviously, as you said, this is your favourite, and this is our beat in a way, the ones that the Treasury are putting out, these collections of Hugo Pratt and another one to look forward to soon. Beyond these, yeah. have you had a chance to read much Corto Maltese? I've read a, a bit of, I mean, I say read. Uh, I've, I've cranked up my schoolboy school French yes. and, and read some of the Corto Maltese, which is, I, I actually, I think, I think I always say to people who say, "Oh God, well, I, I, you know, I can't, I can't read European or foreign comics because I don't speak the language," and I always say, "Actually, have a go. You'll be surprised if you did do a little bit of O level French or Spanish, you'll get a lot further than you kind of imagine you might. So it's definitely worth a go. And then, okay, if you can't really get the story, just look at them; they're fantastic." But I've read a bit of uh, of Cortometese in French and some in English. I think, you know, there have been from the States, there have been that they must have been the ones that Frank Miller saw. I think there's a great collection called The Celts, which brings together some of the I think it's some of the Piff Gadget stories from France uh, in which Cortometese visits Ireland at the time of the Easter Rising, visits uh, Britain at the time of the First World War. They're, they're wonderful stories. Um, and I've also had a go at reading in French the, the the stories that he wrote sort of towards the end of his life. Actually, that's not quite fair because I think he started them earlier. But the, 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 the Scorpions of the Desert, which are the war stories that look at the long-range patrol group forces in North Africa. And again, interesting because of his experience of being in North Africa during the war but they're they're really good stories and yeah I've, I've sort of Google Translate is, is brilliant as well isn't it because you can you can have a go at reading these things and and at least pull up Google Translate to sort of solve some of the bigger problems you experience in a in a in a word balloon um so yeah I'd, I'd recommend them the, the Scorpions of the Desert books uh, fascinating. And of course, as I say, Under the Sign of Capricorn is available on the Kindle in an English translation. Uh, that was fairly easy to get hold of at the moment. And as you know, Jim, when talking of schoolboy French, when this episode comes out at the end of January, I will be in Angoulême in France at the Comics Festival there. And I'm going to be fascinated to see what sort of collections are available in France, because I'm betting that there's probably <laughs> quite a variety of them. Yes, I'd, I'm not sure what the French for take an empty suitcase is, but I think definitely, <laughs> definitely do, because I'm sure you probably are going to come back with a groaning bag full of full of great books. I, I, I envy you going. I think it's probably magnificent there. I've heard other people who have been and said it's, you know, an absolute delight to sort of see the wealth of French and other European comics sort of, you know, arranged around you. So, yeah, no, good luck with that. <laughs> well, it's my first time there, so we'll see. I will report back on this podcast. Um, yeah. Night of the Devil is available from the Treasury of British Comics for fourteen ninety nine or nine ninety nine digitally, and it's also available on the Kindle as well. 
Um, I looked on Comic Art Fans, Jim, and obviously there is an awful lot uh, of Corto Maltese artwork that survives, thank goodness. But I yeah. didn't find um, on my look through any of this stuff from his earlier British sort of war comics period. No. I'm guessing probably most of this artwork doesn't survive, sadly. I think I think possibly you're right. Um, it doesn't seem to have been necessarily accorded the uh the 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 carefulest of treatment um and i have a feeling you're probably right that it's that it's long gone wouldn't it be fascinating to see i i I would be really really intrigued to know at sort of what scale he was working you know given the relatively small page size for a one of these digest books it would be absolutely riveting to see the original art and just sort of look at the look at the scale of it look at the size of it well, let's. It would indeed. Um, let's pretend that the artwork for Night of the Devil and Bayonet Jungle survived, and that we could perhaps keep it away from the uh, the the eyes of European art collectors who would probably snap up anything <laughs> that Pratt yeah. um, had done. Um, let's play the Grail page game and give you all of the art pages and get you to choose one or two uh, that you'd like to uh, own. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna begin by saying this, this will sound crazy. Having just spent a lovely uh, sort of hour or so talking to you about Hugo Pratt, that actually almost before that even I'd be putting my hand up for the the, the Pino dell'Orco color cover tonight of the Devil. Um, I think that is such a magnificent um, color painted cover. I would take that first. However, that seems a bit uh, not in the spirit of the game, really. So thinking of of just Pratt himself, gosh, uh, I found this really hard because I I did feel that the art in uh, Night of the Devil was superior to that in Bayonet Jungle. So the ones I've sort of opted for are from Night of the Devil. Um, And if you've got your hardback in front of you or, or, or your Kindle copy, Page 11. So it's the, in fact, the second sort of full page of chapter one. Um, I'd almost, I'd, I'd say, don't worry too much about the top of the page, but please could I have the, the bottom panel? It's a lovely, lovely shot of uh, looking down into a jungle clearing. You've got this sort of magnificent, rich jungle foliage sort of all around these two figures who are, Again, sketched in almost, you know, in outline, and yet you can see immediately there the the, the the postures and the the sort of the 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 detail of their uniforms and hats and so on. I love it. That that that's a would be a, a page that I would delight in in having on my wall. Um, we talked a little bit about the 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 great sort of way he handles explosions, and I did think this page nineteen in the hardback. A, a fantastic image uh, in the top panel on that page of a Japanese gunner being exploded as a sort of as a British um, grenade lands in the in the gun emplacement. The way that you can still pick out the figure, uh, his limbs, the the gun he's just thrown, uh, sort of been thrown clear of his uniform and hat. Incredible, absolutely incredible. So, yeah, I think those would be my my choices. Well, we will grant you those. Uh, two pages from the Night of the Devil story itself and the uh, full-colour painted cover 
by Pino Delorco as well. Um, Love it. And I will post all these on the various socials when this episode comes out uh, at the end of January in the first week of February. So will people be able to see what we've been talking about? I rather thought that one of the explosion pages was going to come up. Um, <laughs> the rules of the game are, Jim, that the guests go absolutely get precedent. So you get page 19, because I certainly had that on my shortlist okay. as well, as well as page 11. <laughs> um, I might just then turn us towards the end of, uh, or no, about halfway through, page 28, and I will take the full-page image of the idol in the temple and the soldiers sort of yeah. at the bottom of the panel. Yeah, um, yeah. And I will take that. No, one. that is a that's a great image, isn't it? And that that you know, uh, contrary to what we were saying earlier, there is effectively a splash page. You yes. know, a whole page given over to one panel. Pretty rare in these things, but yeah, what a cracker! I, I can imagine that if Pratt presented that as a one pager, um, the editorial team said, "Yeah, no problem. We're, we're, we're keeping yeah. that in. It's 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 so good. Yeah, yeah. No, good choice." But page 11, wonderful stuff, particularly, as you say, in the bottom panel. And then the extraordinary image on page 19, um, where the yeah. grenade goes off above the um, the Japanese gunners. And as you say, everything turns yeah. to negative almost. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Astonishing yeah. work. Jim, it's been fascinating talking about Hugo Pratt. And for me, learning a, a bit more about an artist I've always been interested in, but never really looked into in detail until now. So thank you very much for picking it and coming on the book club. Oh, a, t- a total pleasure. It's It's been great fun to do. Um, as I say, I've always been a, a huge fan of the, of, the, of the book club show. And um, yeah, how lovely to, to have a chance to, to come on and natter myself. Really, really good fun. Great stuff. Now, we're going to turn to guest projects. How long have you been writing about comics yourself? Oh, uh, I think probably about 10 or 15 years on and off, possibly a little bit less. Um, As we were saying at the top of the show, I, I had the good fortune... Gosh, it might be might be more than fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, even to make the acquaintance of Justin Marriott. Uh, we had a shared uh, fascination with the horror fiction of Guy N. Smith, which brought us together. Um, and uh, he's been he's been kind enough to let me sort of scribble things for his various wonderful array of magazines over the years, and uh, that I. I'm fortunate still to be able to do for 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 the the titles that he's publishing at the moment. So uh, that's where a lot of my comics writing um, finds its finds its sort of uh, its its way out. I think you've been in every issue of Brat Battle in Britain so far that Justin has done. I think so. Yes, I probably have. I I reckon, and I I know from having talked to Justin that he has. You know, he's still very keen to 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 keep the 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 magazine going. I think he'd sort of explored whether you could you could run it as a magazine that would deal with with British war comics and other sorts of British comics too. And the, I think the readership response was no, keep it keep it as a war only title. Which sort of gave Justin the 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 reason or an excuse to sort of then start publishing um, his his newer title, Comics Rule OK, which he wants you know there to be there to deal with with the other stuff with with all the sort of uh, the other comics that that wouldn't fit very neatly into a War Stories only title. 
and 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 again i you know i think he's got he's got continuing plans for that sort of running into 2024 so hopefully more of that to look forward to Yes, because I've got I've also got that issue, the first issue of Comics Rule OK, and um, I hope I'm right on this. You wrote the article about the strange history, or rather, the sort of slightly worrying history of bottling as a, um, as a trope <laughs> in British yes, comics. That was me. <laughs> yeah, well, um, Justin and I have, we've entertained each other over the years by sort of now and again emailing one another pictures of people being bottled, uh, and we suddenly realised that what I kind of imagined was a, a very, very rare occurrence uh, and hence it causing so much trouble for action in 1976. I then discovered that, with Justin's help, that it, it seemed to be ten a penny. There were people being bottled in British comics every week uh, for years. Um, so it, it became a sort of like a, a, a sort of one of those weird um, sort of OCD fascinations of tracking down as many of these things as we possibly could. So, yes, I got I got the fun of putting it into into an article for for Comics Rule OK. Absolutely fascinating stuff. And again, I suppose, you know, to step back from it and be slightly serious, it gives us a little inclination about what society was slightly worried about or concerned about at the time of those comics. Yeah. It was, you know, part, uh, a, Absolutely. A, mini, a mini moral panic, I guess. That's it. Exactly so. I, th- I think you're, you've got it exactly that, the, you know, and moral panics don't necessarily obey the rules. So you can, you can have pictures of people being bottled for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. It's not a problem. It arrives at a particular T- juncture there's some other factor that's suddenly in play and boom you've got a you've got a crisis you know you've got ipc having to having to pull action and sort of refashion it before they could re-release it which clearly was not a problem for you know other comics of the s- same period or, or just just before you know it is it, it's really intriguing the infamous bottling in an in an issue of action in the <laughs> uh, is it look out for lefty is the strip isn't it it is look out for lefty. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's exactly it. Yeah. Well, look in the show notes or on the website for this episode, and you'll find links to all of Justin Marriott's uh, excellent publications, all featuring the writing of Jim O'Brien. Um, I'm familiar with the Battle in Britons and Comics Rule OK. The, the, before that, the publications about um, paperback novel collection I'm less familiar with, but I'm guessing that was one of, also one of your shared interests with Justin, was it? Very much so. And Paperback Fanatic, the, the magazine that Justin's been putting out for, for years now, um, and I think the latest edition probably would have been sort of midway through last year. Um, actually, a lot a lot for comics fans to enjoy in, in Paperback Fanatic as well. Frequently, Justin's sort of um, done articles on comics artists working as paperback cover artists or you know crossovers between paperbacks and comics so even if you're not a paperback enthusiast highly recommended back copies of of paperback fanatic for people who are interested in comics i think there's there's often a lot of stuff that would you know us comics fans it would would really appeal ditto and I, i know some of not all of justin's copies are available as back issues but he did various titles a few years back pulp horror again huge amounts of comics material in that and the one called monster maniacs as well again loads of comics material and definitely worth tracking down uh he's very prolific uh justin (laughs) 
Unbelievable. Yes. I don't know how he does it. I, um, you know, it, it sort of nearly kills me to, to get a small essay written and um, Justin can do six in an evening, I think, or something. No, he's, he's, he's incredible. Well, as I say, look in the show notes for links to all of this work from Justin, which features the writings of Jim. And, yeah, lots to get into there. Lots of fascinating little snippets from British comics history uh, is contained within. Jim, thank you so much for coming on the book club. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk about this fascinating artist and some of his history and his great works. Um, off air, I'm going to get you to give me your address and I will send you your copy or your uh, your very own Mega City Book Club coaster, which uh, all my guests Love get. It. And I thank hope you. that we'll get you back on the pod in the book club podcast at some point in the future and we'll do some more uh, interesting snippets of British comics history. Oh, I'd be I'd be delighted, Eamon. It's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure, and and thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to come on and and talk about Pratt and his his magnificent work. It's been really good fun. Thank you very much, Jim, and thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, find all of these links at megacitybookclub.com. You can follow the podcast on Facebook, on Instagram, on Mastodon, Blue Sky, Threads probably on Corto and Maltese and any other social networks that have sprung up since we recorded. And you can email me, as Jim did, mcbcpodcast at gmail.com if you've got a book or an artist or a topic that you'd like to come on and talk about. So that's it. Until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's goodbye from me and... Goodbye from me. Thank you very much. 